0: I hope you're ready for an approximately two-hour sermon, because there is a lot in this gospel lesson to work with today. But I decided I'm not ready for a two-hour sermon, and so I picked one little portion of today's scripture to focus on for these few minutes. Jesus gives his disciples instructions to go into the villages to cast out demons, to heal the sick, to cure disease, to raise the dead. Now, I don't know about you, but this seems like a big task. Jesus is sending his disciples out because people need the healing and transformational power of the living God, and he can't do it all. Perhaps you can imagine the scene as people shared word with what Jesus had done to in their life, perhaps, or their neighbor's life, or the person down the street. We hear these stories in Scripture. The young child who had convulsions, probably epilepsy, and would fall even into the fire, and the father begs for healing to come to his son, and he's healed. Or what about the young girl who was pronounced dead But when Jesus arrives there, he says, no, she was just asleep, and he lifts her up. These stories circulated. People talked about what Jesus had done. And so when he came to that local town of a couple hundred people, you can bet that they anticipated his arrival. How do you envision that scene? When people wanted to see Jesus, do you think they lined up nicely? Or do you think they pressed in around him, speaking loudly about what they needed? Please, look here, help this. Please, Jesus, this. I'd venture to guess that he was crammed the moment he, meant he came into a town, that people surrounded him so tightly. And we read about this in scripture. Remember that story? I'm pretty sure it's in Luke's gospel, where the woman touches the hem of Jesus' cloak. And she's healed from her hemorrhaging. And Jesus says, who touched me? And his disciples say, what do you mean who touched you? People are so tightly packed in here, Jesus. Everybody's touching you. We're on the verge of what could be a stampede if something goes badly. Folks are so crammed into this area, clobbering over each other, making sure that they have a moment of your attention. So Jesus said, I've got to send you out. He says to his disciples, the twelve, and you can see that they're just average human beings. No perfect specimen here. A reference to the tax collector, a reference to the one who would eventually betray him. We are talking normal human beings here. And Jesus sends them out and he says, I'm going to give you the easy people, I'm going to send you to the lost sheep of Israel. Don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the Samaritans, it's going to get too complicated when you try to come into their town and to speak the words of peace from the faith that you and I are a part of, the Hebrew faith. So I'm just going to send you to our people. They're going to be the easy ones. And this is what I need you to do. Cast out demons, cure the sick, raise the dead. Those are your instructions. And they go out. We read about these stories in Scripture, and they are most certainly a long time ago, and we probably would all agree that it's hard to imagine, does this kind of thing still happen now? Is God still at work in the world, curing disease, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons? My friend and mentor, Carol, had that question She was raised in a small town in New Jersey, a relatively conservative upbringing, grew up in a good Christian home, and went off to college in the early 60s and found herself in college during the Civil Rights Movement. She was only three months in school when she participated in her first rally, and it was exhilarating. She ended up arrested at the conclusion of that, She caught the spirit of the desire for transformation, for social change, and so she dedicated herself to participating in the efforts of her fellow classmates gathered together, advocating for something different. She said she was so on fire about it, it became more important to her than her studies, One aspect of this was to go down and to spend a few weeks at an all black college in South Carolina. She and her fellow students roomed with the students that were there. And on one particular day, she and the young woman, the young black woman who was her roommate, were out walking on the sidewalk. And as she tells this story, the young woman who she was walking with was jittery, anxious. It wasn't acceptable in South Carolina at that time for a black person and a white person to be out in the open together like that. The young woman's eyes were darting around, conscious of all of her surroundings, and Carol saw a pickup truck, which she'd seen follow her a couple of other times while she was there, and she saw it approaching, and her friend said, this is trouble, we got to get out of here. And the friend took off. But Carol decided that she was going to confront the people that were in that truck. When they pulled up, a young man got out of the truck cab with a baseball bat and whacked it across her knees and she fell to the ground. The other guys that were there started kicking her. Mercifully, a car came up and they got in their truck and drove away. This was a life-changing moment for Carol. She writes, I saw in the eyes of those men a hatred so deep, an evil so powerful that it was more than just human. It was a larger evil, a violence that could take over a group of people. I realized that for all the idealism I and many others were espousing, there was a fundamental need to change the human heart before any real progress could be made. What I saw on that man's face was the fact that behind so much of the disorder of the world are some very broken people who, when banded together, become a very effective force for evil. And I began to question whether social protest and changing laws alone could solve the problem. Fast forward a few years to 1970, Carol graduated seminary, but at that time women were not permitted to be ordained in the Episcopal Church, so she dedicated herself to being a chaplain at Massachusetts General Hospital in Boston. She was assigned the pediatric unit and the cardiac unit, and her job was to visit people in those rooms who were anticipating usually pretty significant surgery. She said she had a two-point prayer that she would pray with everyone. The first point was to pray that they would trust and give themselves over to the care of the physicians and those that were there to bring about healing. And the second point was that the family who was present would feel some assurance and peace. By her account, it was a pretty good prayer, but it started to feel lifeless. And she began to feel more and more like a fake when she prayed it. On one particular day, she encountered Harold, a New England farmer, who was scheduled for cardiac surgery the next day. And he asked if she would come and pray with him before he went into surgery. And of course she said, of course. The next day, she woke up with reluctance to attend to go to the hospital. She knew she'd promised Harold that she would pray and She didn't feel very good about her two-point prayer. So when she arrived at the hospital, she kept herself busy with some other things that were kind of under her responsibility. She talked with the nurses. She visited all the other patients. And then she realized she had to go up and meet with Harold. She was really hoping that he would be done with surgery before or he had already go into surgery before she got there. But she said she would come, and so she went to his floor. She took the stairs, all 11 flights of them. And while she went up those stairs, she prepared her apology for the fact that she would have missed him. She was feeling quite inadequate. When she got to Harold's room, he was there. He said to her, I knew you would come. And she said, in what she felt like was the socially responsible answer, of course I would come. He was all ready for surgery. He was hooked up to the IVs. The pre-op had all been done. It was just a few minutes before he was set to go, and so she didn't have much time. And she took Harold's hand, and she started her two-point prayer. She wasn't more than four or five words into that prayer, till she felt power come over her. And the words were not her own. She didn't even know really what the words were. She could feel Harold holding on to her arm, jerking it. At the conclusion of the prayer, he looked at her and said, Thank you. I'm better now. She left his room, discombobulated. She stopped in the hallway to lean against the wall just to catch her breath and to figure out what to do next, and she was so drained, she went to the chaplain's office to rest for a while. After that, she went to her afternoon rounds, visiting everyone, as was her responsibility to do, and at the conclusion of that, she set out to look for Harold. She went to the cardiac unit, and he wasn't there. She went to the intensive care unit, and he wasn't there. And thankfully, he wasn't in the morgue. A nurse said to her, Harold's surgeon wants to talk to you. And so with great trepidation, that which she felt like was more like a nine-year-old than a 25-year-old, she went to the surgeon's office. And upon entering, he said, what happened to Harold? And she said, I don't know. What happened to Harold? I can't find him anywhere. He said, we went into into his room today to take him to surgery. And he said, I don't need to have surgery anymore. I'm all better. I want another catheterization before you take me into surgery." And so we did that. And there on the wall were the two x-rays, one of the day before which showed a clear arterial blockage and one from that very morning when there was no blockage at all. He said, what did you do? She said, I don't know. He said, well, each time we pressed Harold and we said, what happened? He said, the chaplain did it. What did you do? She said, I don't know. As she writes about it, I couldn't answer him because I didn't know. I knew something had taken place, but I couldn't explain it. And it took me six years before I could even begin to tell that story because I had no frame of reference for a God who would, in fact, heal anybody. I had no theology for dealing with this, no understanding of it whatsoever. This kind of thing never happened again while I was at the hospital, and I just blocked it out as if it had happened to somebody else. That was a second transitional moment for me because I, like a lot of others, thought of God as a force who moved around and through people, but never connected with them in a personal, transforming way. Her third experience was in a church seven and a half some years later when she was meeting with a woman who came to her, asked for an appointment. And the woman told Carol that her husband was beating her. And viscerally, Carol responded to the horror of that. And the woman was so relieved that Carol understood. And it was at that moment that Carol realized that this transformational power was going to involve her that God's transforming love needed people to go into the world, and she knew that she couldn't change this woman's life for her. There was nothing Carol could do to bring about the redeeming act of God in this woman's life. God was going to have to do that. As she writes, I knew that I could never change her life for her. I needed to know if lives like hers could be redeemed, could have meaning restored to them, I finally had to ask myself if there might be more to God than I'd thought all along. Could God directly change this woman's life? Gradually these questions began to nag away at me, the problem of evil, what to do with a world that is broken and sick, and how human lives can be changed. I read a lot of great literature, hoping to find ideas or a philosophy which could change lives. At the end of my time at that particular parish, I began to wonder if there wasn't more to the Christian faith than I had thought. Could God make a bigger difference? One of the associates at that church used to badger me with questions. You don't know who Jesus is, he'd say. You're a pagan. I'd answer back, you're a fundamentalist, which was the worst thing I could think of to call him. Our friendly arguments were very challenging. During this period, I began reading the New Testament anew with lots of questions in my head and heart, and there I encountered the person of Jesus. I saw that he was confronting evil, healing people who were sick and broken, and he was talking about the kingdom of God and new life. Thus began the journey which culminated in my becoming a convinced disciple of Jesus Christ. God became alive to me and was working in my life, and he was able to change the lives of other people as well. She began her journey in becoming a convinced disciple of Christ. Maybe that's why Jesus sent out those 12. He needed them to go out there into the area that they weren't competent where they would be aware of their inadequacies and their vulnerabilities. He needed them to go out there so that they would experience the transforming, redeeming love of God at work. I think God does that with us still now. It is a difficult place to be when we realize our own inadequacies, our own vulnerability, when we're conscious that it really could all fall apart. When we know we don't have what it takes to bring about the reality that we know God is calling us into, this deep sense of knowing. God puts us in those places, I believe, so that we might grow in relying on him and discover who it is that God is fully for us. This is why Paul is so crazy about Jesus. Even talking about it in his letter to the Romans today, about glorying in suffering. Paul knows what it's like to be completely qualified. He is completely qualified. He's lived his life making sure he's completely qualified. And it wasn't until those qualifications meant nothing that he realized the fullness of life that he longed for. And it was Jesus who revealed that to him. He now can't shut up about it, Paul. He can't shut up. He says in his letter to the Romans, be glad for the suffering. Indeed, when we recognize our own inadequacies and our vulnerabilities and the fact that we can't make it work anymore, it does cause suffering. We don't know what to do, where to turn. We wonder if all of this is just made up, or if we've been fooled. It hurts. But Paul says that's now the moment where God can break in and change your life. It gives way to endurance. Endurance by itself doesn't have much virtue, but endurance in a life of faith does. How do we pray when God doesn't give us the answer that we'd hoped for? It can be an act of endurance. How do we sit in the presence of the living God when it seems too quiet? That can be an act of endurance. Rearranging our schedules, making sure to get up in the morning to have a moment of quiet and prayer. Sometimes it just feels like endurance, but Paul says that endurance gives you hope. And that hope leads to the transformation that God has to offer you. God knows that we're more than willing to pull our weight, to work our hardest, to dedicate our full selves. And the good news that God has to offer us is that when we come to the certainty that that's not enough, then we're open to what God has to offer A fullness of life that we couldn't imagine. We couldn't imagine it because we couldn't achieve it on our own. And this is where faith and grace come in. Grace pours over us, God's mercy engulfs us. It gets into all the cracks of where we're broken. Like living water, it streams through us, it pulses through our body like our blood, it makes the heart beat in a way different than it ever has before. This is the new life we're called into. And my friends, we seem only responsive to it when everything's fallen away. We seem only open to it when we have nothing else to hold on to. That is the good news. That God meets us there in that place of difficulty in that place of vulnerability, in that place of suffering. And in coming to us, says, now, I want to invite you into the abundant life that I have for you. Amen.